Christopher Adam, you're fellow at St Cross College, Oxford, and Professor of Development Economics, and the Head of Department of the Oxford Department of uh, International Development. That's right. Good yeah. afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, it's a very pleasant day in St Cross College. We're sitting in the quadrangle. The sun is shining. Um, Chris, tell me about you know when you came to Oxford. When did you come to St Cross? Give us some of your your backstory. Well, sometimes it feels as if I've I've been at Oxford all my life. I came here as a graduate student in the mid-1980s. I was um, uh, an MPhil and DPhil student at Nuffield College, um, after which I spent a period of time uh, working as a government economist in, in Southern Africa. Um, and I was at the point of um, making my career um, in the international organization when I took some advice from a, a senior colleague and mentor in Oxford who said, you ought to come back. There's uh, lots of exciting things happening in the area of development economics. So if you're interested in research, do come back. So I returned as a postdoc um, in the early 90s. I spent a little bit of time in, in the US at the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard. And then I uh, took up my fellowship here in the mid to late 1990s. I think that makes me amongst the uh, longest serving fellows in the college. Um, so I'm an official fellow. Um, I teach development economics uh, at graduate school level, so I teach graduate students only. And I have been between the Department of Economics and, and laterally the Department of International Development for approximately 20 years now. Does the, do the Department of Economics and uh, uh, Department of International Development demand sort of different different skills from you? Oh, for a long time they were um, at very different points on the on the spectrum of economics. Um, I like to think of what I've been doing with a number of colleagues is bringing the two departments and the two disciplines much more closely together, and that's that uh, I think has helped to put Oxford very much at uh, the leading edge of, of development economics. But they do demand different things. Um, I think one way of looking at it is the kind of work I do in, in the Department of International Development and my colleagues do is perhaps a little bit more applied and a little bit more uh, engaged in, in uh, policy and policy debates around the world. Um, and maybe we can talk about those a little bit later. Sure, absolutely. So tell me about St. Cross and what it means to you. Well, uh, St. Cross is, is a fantastic college. I've, my experience in, in Oxford has only been with graduate colleagues at St. Anthony's College. Um, and I really enjoy the, um, the nature of a graduate college. And I think St. Cross um, really embodies the best of, of the graduate college spirit. That's the sense of a, a large, engaged, and fascinating fellowship, a very uh, exciting student body, sort of, and uh, I, I love the, the sense of the, the fellowship and the cross-section of people that, uh, uh, that make up the fellowship here. Okay, oh, and tell, tell me something about your research from yes. the past into the present. Well, uh, I suppose I would describe myself as a, a macro-development economist or a, a development macro macroeconomist. I'm not sure which way round you would you would put those two terms. Um, what that means in practice is that I'm interested in in the behaviour and the functioning of um, 
of economies, low-income country economies in particular. Low-income countries, by definition, uh, incomes are lower, uh, they're more vulnerable to, to the kind of vicissitudes of, of the global economy, um, uh, they're more prone to kind of monopolistic behavior, is analytical in the sense of focusing on, on models of economies of this, of this type. But a big part of what I do is would be described as applied policy economics. Quite a lot of advisory work um, for international agencies, uh, the British government uh, in particular, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank on the one hand, but laterally um, directly with, with governments um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, if I could just maybe give you an example that uh, um, over the last 18 months or so um, Ethiopia has been going through quite a profound political change and a, an economic liberalization after maybe two to three decades of a kind of tightly controlled but pretty effective economic strategy. Um, we often think of Ethiopia as, as mimicking a kind of a China growth model that's changing and changing rapidly and, and one of the things I've been doing recently is, is working with um, the Ministry of Finance and the, and the Central Bank in Ethiopia to help think through the implications for the conduct of monetary policy in, in Ethiopia, how, what sort of institutional reforms are required, what sort of policy choices are policymakers confronted with and what sort of evidence do we have from other similar economies on the continent and elsewhere on essentially what works, what doesn't and, and why. Um, so in that sense I, I do a lot of similar work um, in other countries in Zambia, in Tanzania, Uganda, Ghana, Nigeria. Um, and I'm one of a small number of people who um, do this from a, a purely academic um, position that most of the advice that uh, countries are getting from us. And, and so one of the interesting things about the work that I do on the policy side is um, not having an agenda, trying to bring um, cutting edge research and insights into policy debates as, as a sort of honest broker in the policy space, to follow it. Um, uh, and that's a very satisfying compliment to the, the more kind of pencil and paper analytical work that I do when I'm in Oxford. Okay, great. How did you fall to Africa? <laughs> well, like, like many people's uh, careers, it's a sequence of unanticipated steps. Um, I graduated uh, from, from an MPhil in economics here in the, the mid-1980s, um, and I had a job offer in the Treasury in the UK and a job offer at the Bank of England, and it just felt a bit grey and dull. And someone said, why don't you apply for the Overseas Development Institute Fellowship, which is a, a, um, a long-lived scheme that uh, provides sort of junior economists to governments around the world. I was on my way to Fiji, and there was a coup in Fiji, and so the institute said to me, well, we have one posting left. In fact, we have two postings left, Vanuatu or Swaziland. I couldn't find Vanuatu on a map, so I ended up in Swaziland. So, by accident, 
I stumbled into it and then the combination of that plus meeting uh, well now Sir Paul Collier uh, my thesis advisor in the DPhil who was setting up a research group on on sub-Saharan Africa just as I was finishing my ODI fellowship I fell into a research career working on on this particular part of the world of development economics and, and uh, sub-Saharan Africa in particular. It's, it's interesting how, how life happens, isn't it? It's, it is a sequence of events, it is indeed. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so n tell me, uh, could, you, could you elaborate on any specific policy debates that you've been involved in? Mm. Well, one that I've been doing, working on recently is um, uh, in East Africa, we, um, there is a, an institution called the East African Community. It um, was originally uh, founded in the mid-60s. And so they asked me to be a, an advisor as they developed what was called a, the Protocol for Monetary Union in East Africa. Essentially, East Africa is equivalent to the Maastricht Treaty in Europe. Very interesting time to be working on this because a lot of what I found myself saying was, be careful what you wish for. So a lot of what I was doing was trying to kind of translate some of the deeper messages about the creation of the Eurozone and its and its uh, challenges since creation, and trying to think about these in the context of East Africa, um, because were monetary union to take place in East Africa, it would only be the second place in the world where you have a common currency that is not, or a currency that's not underpinned by by a single sovereign state, a full-blown political federation, or a kind of political hegemon. Uh, so I worked for a number of years with all the governors of the central banks, with the International Monetary Fund, with uh, heads of state in East Africa to um, help think about what lessons we learn from the European experience that could be used to design um, a more robust, a more flexible and a more kind of fit for purpose form of monetary union. Project that occupied me for a, for a, a very long time. Yeah. Exciting work. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> um, it was extremely exciting because the the quality of the people I worked with was so extremely high. The governors of the central banks, an immensely astute group of people, fantastic civil servants in the Ministry of Finances across the region, and a really interesting engagement with them on the one hand and with with senior officials from from the British government from uh, the European Central Bank from the International Monetary Fund uh, it's a great privilege to, to have the opportunity to do that yeah, fantastic and now Chris what's on the horizon for you well that's a really really interesting question um, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning I'm head of department um, and I'm just uh, coming to the end of, of that uh, role and it's a great opportunity to sort of reset and rethink uh, the next phase of research that I'm interested in. And I guess there are um, a number of areas, some more technical than others, but one that I think is particularly interesting comes out of uh, a little bit of work I did a couple of years ago with uh, the UK government and, and the World Bank under what was called the Government Foresight uh, as the Office of the Chief Scientist. In, in the UK government and it's looking at climate change and, and resilience um, 
and one area that I have got involved with is looking at, in a sense, macroeconomic policy responses to, to natural disasters, the kind of chronic challenges like, uh, like deep climate change that alters at a fundamental way um, uh, agricultural cycles or um, uh, makes kind of rain-fed agricultural economies more vulnerable to, to climate variation. Or, as we've been looking at more recently, um, uh, cyclones, hurricanes, natural disasters in small economies. And there are a number of, of quite interesting macroeconomic issues, sort of how, how do you think about um, both preparedness, um, preparedness for and responsiveness to natural disasters. Uh, to what extent do you um, make use of conventional uh, fiscal and macroeconomic policy instruments on, in the areas of taxation, in public debt? Um, do you do small, does it make sense for small um, island economies, for example, to try and take out disaster risk insurance? Um, what, are the, what are the arguments for and against this? Um, how do you think about investing in resilience how do you trade off the kind of the higher costs in investing in resilient infrastructure against the um, the more urgent short-term needs in, in in poor countries so there's a, a big program of work that um, is developing in a number of global international institutions that is calling out for some quite interesting fundamental research in the macroeconomic area, thinking about um, how systems, vulnerable systems respond to these shocks, um, how we think about the setting of precautionary policy instruments, are there obvious ways to design better forms of um, international engagement that may well be the basis of my next um, substantial piece of research. Certainly urgent work in a changing world. Absolutely, yes. yes. Christopher Adam, thank you very much. Thank you.